Uh, we have an extremely interesting subject and speaker this evening. Uh, Mark Toby, people who are a bit older like me know more about him because he was quite well known in the last century. In fact, I have very deep roots with Mark because my parents met him at a Baha'i summer school in Geyserville, California in 1944, became very good friends of his, and ended up collecting a hundred of his paintings. So I grew up in a home with a hundred Mark Toby paintings from all different periods on the walls. I met him several times myself, uh, including visiting him at Basel toward the, the end of his life. So I've had, I was also a student in, in France when he had his exposition as great respect of 300 paintings at the Louvre in Paris and was able to visit it on several occasions. So this is, this is something very close to my heart as well. I'm looking forward to what Rob will tell us about him this evening. I hope all of you will discover more about this amazing artist, uh, extremely creative, often not very well appreciated. Uh, and I like that's really sort of what we learn, uh, what can we do to make him better known because he was really one of the great pioneers of 20th century art. Uh, extremely creative person, and we'll learn more about that from Rob. Rob is a perfect person to tell us more about Mark. Uh, he's a writer and radio producer with more than 30 years experience with BBC Radio and Classic FM. He was director of the Office of Public Information at the Baha'i World Center in, in Haifa, Israel from 2009-2013. He's now a member of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'i United Kingdom, which is a national governing body of the Baha'is for the United Kingdom. He's written 10 books, mainly on opera, uh, film, music, and Baha'i history, and is now reviewing art expositions for the Daily Telegraph and Apollo magazine, and producing podcasts with historian Dan Snow. But in particular, he did an MA in art history on his dissertation on the development of the arc, art of Mark Toby. So he's perfectly qualified to tell us more about Mark, introduces to his work this evening, and then in the discussion afterwards, we can explore this in more detail. So with that, I will turn over to Rob for his presentation. We look forward to learning more about this amazing artist, Mark Toby. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. And um, if you want to see some wonderful photographs of Mark Toby, Arthur's brother, Greg, has put up the family archive online, and there's some really fantastic pictures of Mark, uh, especially the ones in Paris in 1961, when he became the first living artist to have an exhibition at the Louvre, which was a major breakthrough and a, a major achievement for a living artist and also for an American artist. So um, you'll hear some more about that in just a moment. So hello, everyone. So today I like to try to answer the question, uh, what were the artistic and thematic influences, the evolution of the white writing style of the painter Mark Toby? You may know that um, Toby's distinctive uh, style, his abstract paintings brought him great acclaim and um, great success in the middle decades of the 20th century. But today he rarely receives a footnote uh, in the art history texts and the conventional narrative of art history. So. Um, my slides now I can change. Um, Mark Toby was without doubt one of the most cosmopolitan artists of the 20th century, living his long life and career in New York City, Paris, Chicago, Seattle, Paris, Basel. 
He was honored with some of the highest distinctions that the European art scene of his time could bestow. In 1958, alongside Mark Rothko, Toby represented the USA at the 29th Venice Biennale, where out of some 3,000 works exhibited that year, Toby's painting Capricorn was awarded the grand prize. Not since Whistler uh, won the gold medal in Venice in 1895 had an American artist won it. And then three years later, a major retrospective of Toby's work was held at the Louvre in Paris, which was an unprecedented achievement for a living artist. So it might be expected that such accolades would ensure that Toby would be equally fated in the United States and would today continue to enjoy an enduring popularity and significance among the artists of the 20th century. Yet his influence on the emergence of what's been termed all over abstraction in the early 1940s has generally been ignored. Even at a time when there were those among Europeans who considered him to be the foremost living American painter, Toby was often overlooked in his own homeland. His reputation was overshadowed by the louder, more muscular practitioners of abstract expressionism, although he's sometimes been listed as a painter in that vein. And in comparison to his contemporaries, such as uh, Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein, Willem de Kunig, uh, Toby's name is hardly known, particularly in America. So why is this? It's a general phenomenon um, in the mainstream narrative of the history of modern art that the spiritual content of many artists' work has been largely ignored or dismissed or underestimated. Quite distinct from his contemporaries, Toby, through his often small, quiet paintings, he portrayed a search for the singularity at the heart of existence, of the triumph of light over darkness, of the coming together of East and West, and of the harmony necessary for progress that must found, be found between science and religion. So it's perhaps because of Toby's non-demonstrative personality, the small scale and the delicacy of his works, his background in commercial illustration, his study of Zen Buddhism, his interest in the Baha'i teachings with its accompanying spirituality and sobriety, uh, his stated intention to convey a spiritual philosophy through his work, and his distance, both geographical and temperamental, from the New York School, perhaps it was these factors that led to Toby's name being deliberately and almost completely removed from the narrative of America's modern art history promoted by the very influential critic Clement Greenberg. He was dedicated to his mission that Pollock was the true American original, and Greenberg appears to have consciously blocked Toby's inclusion among all that was innovative and dynamic in American art in the middle of the 20th century. Greenberg even categorically and erroneously revealed and stated that Pollock had never seen any examples of Toby's work. However, recent research has revealed that Pollock would visit Toby's exhibition at the Willard Gallery in New York as early as 1944 and wrote to friends how impressed he was by it. So Toby's own artistic influences are not easily separated from uh, his, the insights and the inspiration that he derived from a wide variety of other sources, uh, in particular city life, spiritual systems of belief, science, nature, and music. In chronological terms, these interests were all simultaneously woven in with his exposure to art artistic stimuli, and together they both presaged the emergence of this unique personal style. Toby was an artist who understood deeply and keenly appreciated the history of art. His own work was rooted in his knowledge, not only of his 
artistic forebears, but also what was emerging during his own time. And as one writer put it, Toby's route was erratic, but logical in retrospect, a rigorous discipline, as well as a self-conducted apprenticeship. For Toby, art represented the deployment of visual language that had its own centuries-old evolutionary narrative, a language which could and should be studied and learned by all inclined to continue making art. Toby averred that while artists certainly derive inspiration from the world around them as a subject matter, the visual language with which they choose to respond is primarily built upon the breakthroughs made by other artists. You must have roots, he said. You have to care about things and be excited by them. Art comes from art as men come from men and flowers from flowers. Toby's arrival at his own particular and for him most enduring version of abstraction in the mid-1930s came with this deep knowledge of the history and techniques of Western art, combined with an acute awareness of work being made by his contemporaries around the world, as well as of traditions not widely accessible to North Americans in the first half of the 20th century. He was a keen visitor to art galleries as well as other museums where he gained visual inspiration from the study of, for example, microcosmic patterns in geological specimens. But it was through looking at art that Toby was able to connect his own development and aspire to longevity in his own work with the achievements of the past. My sources of inspiration, he said, have gone from those of my native Middle West to those of microscopic worlds. Yet uh, there seems to have been little in his upbringing that would have naturally inclined him towards a career in art. He was born on the 11th of December, 1890, in Centerville, Wisconsin. He recalled an idyllic uh, Tom Sawyerish childhood, spent fishing, swimming, and playing by the Mississippi. Toby's only exposure to artistic activity during this period was his father's sketching of animals using a thick carpenter's crayon or sculpting uh, small creatures out of stone. In 1906, uh, the Toby family moved to the steel manufacturing town of Hammond, Indiana, suburb of Chicago. And uh, it was here that for the first time he experienced mechanized urban America. And the city also offered him his first introduction to the fine arts, a passion that was actively encouraged by his parents. I was interested in everything when I was younger, he recalled. And this insatiable curiosity never seems to have deserted him. When the family moved to Chicago in 1909, he made regular visits to libraries and museums. And he started taking Saturday morning classes in war watercolor and oil painting at the Art Institute of Chicago. One image that attracted him and probably enticed him into his first career as a fashion illustrator was the typical commercial depiction of the glamorous American girl. Toby described it as the most beautiful thing you could put on canvas. Um, in 1908, he was forced to abandon his studies when his father became unwell. He took various jobs, including in an iron and steel factory by uh, where he worked as an industrial designer. And in his spare time, he was constantly sketching, refining his skills by drawing any subject he could get his hands on. And by the age of 20, he was working as an illustrator. In 1911, he went to New York City, where he soon obtained a position with McCall's magazine, and he received classes from the painter and teacher Kenneth Hayes Miller. Miller's depiction of classically posed fashionable women in a city setting appear to have made an impact on Toby's own stylized rendering of the human form and excited his fascination with urban themes. 
Toby's own fashion illustrations, of which this is an example, were clearly a product of their time, dictated by the demands of a client. But his handling of tone, the line, shows how fine artists were commanding his attention. Masters of bravura brushwork, such as John Singer Sargent, who possessed, as Toby described it, the handling bug, were immensely appealing to him. Soon my eyes began to discern others, he said, as the stately stars of the Renaissance swung into view. Franz Hals's brush was lashed to sergeants as the handling bug bit deeply into all like myself. It is evident uh, from Toby's own portrait drawings that he took figurative classical drawing draftsmanship very seriously. He was soon accomplished at it between 1912 and 1917 when he was in his mid-twenties. He began to move away from the stylization of commercial design and drawing from life, uh, particularly experimented with studies of the human form in motion and at rest. And there was some success as a portraitist, uh, an exhibition of his depictions of well-known figures such as this opera singer Mary Garden in 1917, displaying images of celebrities and uh, other prominent people of the time. While he worked mostly in New York, uh, it was on a return visit to Chicago in 1913 that Toby saw the International Exhibition of Modern Art, which became known as the Armory Show. This was the first major exhibit of modern art ever staged in the United States. At the three locations where the work was displayed, some 250,000 Americans, who up until that moment were predominantly familiar with classical figurative art, encountered the full range of experimental styles from the European avant-garde, Impressionism, Fauvism, Cubism, Futurism, and even one piece by Kandinsky representing German Expressionism. The majority of the visitors to the Armoury show, including Toby, were largely dumbfounded by this explosion of vivid, non-naturalistic colours, the distortions of form, the abstractions, celebrating a mechanised modern world, and the other kinds of experiments that were on display. Even the former President Theodore Roosevelt publicly announced that's not art. But it was the works of the Cubists that provoked the most confusion, and Marcel Duchamp's Cubist futurist style, nude descending a staircase, painted the year before, became the butt of most of the jokes and newspaper cartoons and criticism. And Toby, along with most of the critics and public, found it incomprehensible describing it as a chaotic explosion. In 1918, Toby made his own first important foray into modernism when he became a close associate with the Arensberg Circle. During the final days of the Armoury Show in 1912, journalist Walter Arensberg had reportedly experienced a sudden epiphany viewing the works on display. He bought 51 paintings by Picasso, Braque, Miro, Juan Gris, covering the walls of his apartment on West 67th Street. It became a gathering place for the avant-garde among the Marcel Duchamp, Francis Picabia, the Americans Man Ray, Charles DeMuth, Charles Sheila, Marsden Hartley, the dancer Isadora Duncan, the writer William Carlos Williams, composer Edgar Varese. And under the leadership of Duchamp and Man Ray, the circle would evolve into an American branch of the Dada movement. And it was at the Arensbergs that Mark Toby's sensibilities appear to have finally become attuned to more uh, contemporary forms of art. When he saw Duchamp's new Descending a Staircase again, his first encounter with, with it in six years, he described it as a wonderful abstraction. 
So a profound challenge emerged for Toby around that time, and it was the question of form in painting. The only goal I can definitely remember, he later told an interviewer, was in 1918, when I said to myself, if I don't do anything else in my painting life, I will smash form. I felt keenly that space should be freer. As I remember, I really wanted to smash form, to melt it in a more moving and dynamic way. Toby by then was familiar with uh, Cubism's attempts to represent multiple views of subjects fragmented on a single plane, as well as Futurism's practice of capturing the speed and dynamism of modern life, often by repeating subjects many times over on a canvas, uh, as if in a multi-exposure photograph. But uh, while his muted palette was clearly influenced by Picasso and Braque, Toby was not sympathetic towards the dismemberment deformation and fragmentation of the figure for mere shape and pattern or its devaluation into still life. This is a self-portrait uh, that Mark Toby did at that time. He said, a terrible mutilation of the figure isn't very impressive either. I've seen pictures in which the human figure has been chopped up, looked like leprosy, chewed to bits by dogs. This is not to me humanistic art at all. But perhaps by wanting to smash or melt form, Toby was aiming to reach deeper in, into the spirit of the subject or the object of the painting, to explore its reality and its context within multiple planes of existence. Although Toby seemed to be following a promising path in New York as an artist, he chose to move to Seattle in 1922 after learning of the existence of the Montessori-influenced Cornish School. It had been founded in 1914 by the pianist and teacher Nellie Cornish. Toby was unknown in Seattle when Cornish invited him to teach painting classes, but she recruited talent when she instinctively sensed originality and quality. Teaching launched Toby into a period of much experimentation. It was here I finally realized I could penetrate forms, he said. Thus, the majority of paintings and drawings that Toby did during this time in Seattle displays his interest in a kind of vitalism. That's a theory that the origin and phenomena of life are dependent on a life force or principle which is distinct from purely chemical or physical forces. Toby's amoebic botanic forms, reminiscent of human hair and flesh, seemingly emerge from swirling currents of energy, subduing the more formal geometric lines that suggest uh, perhaps the built environment. In the mid-1920s, eager for new visual and cultural experiences, Toby made his first extended travels through Europe, the Mediterranean, the Near East. He stayed the summer and autumn of 1925 in Paris, where he not only spent long hours closely studying masterpieces in the Louvre, but he was also to open his mind more to modernism. Through the extended visits he made to galleries and museums and the Salon of Gertrude Stein, he further explored the works of Braque, whom he met, uh, Picasso, and André Masson, whose works appeared in at least three exhibitions while Toby was in Paris. Masson moved from a cubist futuristic approach to capturing movement to being among the first to attempt automatic drawing. In an almost trance-like state, he would allow his hand to move freely across the surface of the paper, producing this fluid, unconscious play of line and it was a, an approach that uh, drew upon ideas emerging in surrealism of the power of the unconscious and the dream. 
In addition to painting naturalistic portraits and city scenes, Toby's travels led to further absorption of modernist influences. Uh, the mysterious compositions of Giorgio de Chirico, for example, almost surrealistic stage set designs combined with cubism, also find echoes in Toby's depiction of sparse or empty scenes. For example, this Near Eastern landscape uh, with its peculiarly dislocated perpendicular fish uh, in the top right hand corner of the painting. Another source of great encouragement to Toby was Marsden Hartley. He was set upon a spiritual quest for art's deeper meaning beyond the empirical world. Along with many of his contemporaries, Hartley was deeply affected by Kandinsky's concerning the spiritual in art and the German expressionist's assertion that the mood of nature can be imparted only by the artistic rendering of its spirit. As early as 1912, Hartley had renounced still life painting in favor of a spontaneous abstraction, creating a series of Kandinsky-like images scattered with lines, mystic symbols, colors picked for their particular resonance or meaning. Hartley had also associated closely with the Ahrensberg Circle prior to 1920, but his and Toby's paths may have crossed on a number of occasions. Hartley was an attendee at Greenacre, the residential spiritual center in Elliott, Maine. Hartley's friendship with Alfred Lunt and Harlan Ober led him into the then small circle of followers of the Baha'i faith. Greenacre was also to play a key role in Toby's own attraction to the Baha'i teachings. As a result of their interaction, Toby too ventured into creating sensuous, swelling, curvaceous shapes to depict an idealized state or place based on people, plants, elements of landscape. And reminiscent of Hartley's paintings, Toby's work began to deploy outlines, thick paint, arbitrary use of color, and ethereal light, such as in this painting called Towards the Light. Toby also began to experiment with Japanese methods of two-dimensional composition. His long affair with the calligraphic line began when he met a young Chinese painter, Teng Bai, who was completing his graduate studies in art at the University of Washington. Alongside his teaching responsibilities at the Cornish School, Toby set time aside to study calligraphy with his new friend, who was also lecturing at his university on aesthetics. The life and movement Teng gave to his brushwork made a strong impression on Toby, who found that one could experience a tree in dynamic line as well as, well as in mass and light. From Teng, Toby began to be exposed to a different approach to painting, which recognized the difference between volume and the living line, a means of opening solid form, giving tangibility to empty space and of breathing life into static Western realism. On one particular occasion in 1929, when Toby was looking at a goldfish tank, Teng asked him why Western artists only painted fish when they're dead. Despite uh, the pictorial similarities between his mature works and those of his contemporaries, Toby um, railed against his style being described as pure abstraction. I know very little about what generally is termed abstract, he said. Pure abstraction would mean a type of painting completely unrelated to life, which is unacceptable to me. Even at times when his imagery was at its most abstract, the title he gave to a piece was often suggestive of some natural form or phenomenon that might offer a clue uh, to its inspiration or meaning. Rather, his very diverse sources 
he said, were firmly rooted in the Orient, the Occident, science, religion and cities. Innovation and the quest for knowledge held much excitement for Toby. I'm accused often of too much experimentation, he said. But what else should I do when all other factors of man are in the same condition? I thrust forward into space as science and the rest do. Toby had a lifelong love affair with the natural world. And unlike many of his American contemporaries, particularly those termed abstract expressionists, he rarely abandoned references to nature. Perhaps inspired by his early love of Blake, with his professed ability to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, Toby could find reflections of the immensity of space in the patterns of a single leaf or a rock, as though the whole world were contained therein, and from a leaf, an insect, a universe appeared. The forms, textures, and colors of fossils, of minerals and crystals became a particular source of inspiration for Toby. The patterning in such specimens would provide the starting point for many of his paintings. On pavements and the bark of trees, I have found whole worlds, he said. Now, it might seem an uh, anomaly that an artist who uh, responded to the natural world with such passion could find an equal fascination in modern cities. From the time in 1906 that he and his family moved from rural Wisconsin to Hammond, Toby found mechanized urban America a profound source of fascination. Quite aside from the exposure to the fine arts that life in the city offered, his visual sense was captivated particularly by marketplaces, electric lights and signs, the variety of buildings, the microcosmic patterns in the most mundane of physical phenomena and the spirit and density of human life. This feeling was particularly captured in his stepping out into the streets of New York City on Armistice Day in 1918 and being carried along by a dancing, heaving mass of humanity, completely integrated with the mass spirit, as he put it. Despite his uh, 20th century Western sensibilities, Toby was not sympathetic to the communist leanings of his, uh, many of his contemporaries. He disagreed with its fundamental atheism. When godlessness is taught to the young, they are godless and will remain so, he said. There was always a yearning for transcendence in Toby's painting, which he described as more subconscious than conscious, a kind of self-contained contemplation. One is so surrounded by the scientific naturally, one reflects it, but one needs the religious side, he said. One might say the scientific aspect interests the mind, the religious side frees the heart. All are interesting. In 1918, at the age of 28, Toby thought of art uh, as a medium through which one could experience inspiration, therefore heightening the value of living. Yet with all this, he said, when I went out into the social world, I found that while art was discussed and liked, that it appeared to have but a small influence on the spiritual side of these people. I remember one night after an evening party at Marcel Duchamp's studio, while waiting for an elevated train, I kept wondering if by chance there might be something else greater than art. This idea remained with me for several days, during which I thought considerably about the expression, the love of God, what it is, what it could mean to one like myself. This led to prayer to know about this profound state. At a dinner party in New York, uh, Toby met the portrait painter Juliet Thompson. And afterwards, since they both lived in the same direction, the two walked home together. Before they parted, Thompson asked Toby if he would sit for her. It was while posing in her studio 
that Toby noted a photograph of a man with a white beard wearing a turban. Toby thought the face was remarkable, but he felt no particular curiosity to find out any more about it. However, during the period of sitting for Thompson, Toby felt that he had a very strange, powerful dream, which concerned this person in the photograph, or seemed to. And when he told Miss Thompson about the dream, she grew quite excited, but didn't say anything. And the picture, of course, was Abdul Baha. At Thompson's instigation, Toby was invited to visit Greenacre, and he stayed for several months. Uh, while knowing little of the faith's tenets, it gradually dawned on him, he said, that this little group of people with their prayers, their smiling faces, and their unbounded enthusiasm regarding this new religion really had a new spirit. Anyway, something I couldn't exactly put into words, but convinced me that what they believed was the truth. In 1919, Toby himself is mentioned in a letter to Juliet Thompson from Abdu'l-Bahá, in which he asks her to convey warmest, most loving greetings to Mark Toby on my behalf. In that same message, Abdu'l-Bahá delineates a spiritual perspective on the value of making art, which would be of profound significance to Toby, and indeed all artists in the Baha'i faith to this day. I rejoice to hear that thou takest pains with thine art, for in this wonderful new age, art is worship. The more thou strivest to perfect it, the closer wilt thou come to God. What bestowal could be greater than this, that one's art should be even as the act of worshipping the Lord? That is to say, when thy fingers grasp the paintbrush, it is as if thou wert at prayer in the temple. So encountering the Baha'i faith undoubtedly provided Toby with the spiritual direction he'd been seeking. His interest in the coming together and cross-fertilization of Eastern and Western culture, of science and religion, of nature and modernity, must have been further excited by the Baha'i teachings. After this time, Baha'i concepts of unity, the progressive revelation of God to humanity, the forces of spirituality versus materialism, the positive and equal value given to diverse elements, the dominance of light over darkness, they all become manifest in Toby's paintings. Initially, he attempted to depict explicitly Baha'i themes, portraying martyr or prophet figures, such as this painting movement round the martyr behind me, or visualizing a future era of universal peace, rising orb, a study for your mural uh, suggests the arrival of a new revelation from God into the world in the form of a sun at dawn and the commotion it stirs in both the human and angelic realms. When Toby made here the first of his two pilgrimages, Shoghi Effendi told him that it would not be appropriate to paint the faith's prophetic figures, but the, that he could, if he wished, depict the early self-sacrificing heroes of the religion. And Shoghi Effendi also said to him, art must inspire personal satisfaction is not enough. Toby was greatly relieved that Shoghi Effendi stated that there could be no such thing as Baha'i art at such an early period in the faith's development. He saw this as a great liberation. A set of beliefs that had no iconic tradition enabled him to visualize Baha'i concepts freely and develop his own personal expression without feeling that he was bound to convey ideas in a prescribed or a restricted way. So Mark Toby finally arrives at his white writing style in 1935, while he was a teacher at Dartington Hall School in Devon in England. Four years earlier, Toby had received an invitation to teach at Dartington as a result of his being acquainted with Beatrice Strait. She was a drama pupil at the Cornish School, and she was the eldest daughter of the American heiress 
Dorothy Payne Whitney of the Whitney family and the Whitney Museum. She was one of the richest women in America in the early 20th century, and she's established Dartington Hall in 1929 with her husband, Leonard Elmhurst. Their school was a hotbed of new thinking, where Eastern thought combined with modern theories about the relationship of people to each other, to the environment, to culture, extending out to the entire planet. Here you see Leonard Elmhurst with Rabindranath Tagore, who was one of the many thinkers of the age who would come to Dartington. So to realize her vision and inspired by the model of the Cornish School, uh, Dorothy Strait Whitney personally invited to Dartington those whose artists whose beliefs she respected and which corresponded to her own. Her sense that a fundamental unity could be found at the heart of all things made Toby a natural fit for the school. He would go on to become one of Dartington's most influential and longest serving members of staff, returning there repeatedly over a period of eight years. And by all accounts, Toby became known as a remarkable teacher. On one particular occasion, he observed that his students needed to loosen up. Leave your boards, he said. Dance, let go. That's better. Dance, you emotionally tied up English. Now stand up and dance with your chalk on your drawing boards. Curiously, though, <clears throat> there's little evidence that Toby was loosening up himself in his own work. Certainly, he continued to experiment with a hybrid of motifs and compositional ideas, some of them fusing European classicism with Cubism and what he observed from his new friends among English modernists such as Ben Nicholson. But there remains a sort of somber, heavy formality to Toby's paintings. Yet Dartington would also expand Toby's outlook even further. The site was rich with Indian dance, Japanese prints and ceramics, Oriental calligraphy, Toby mingled with some of the most progressive minds of the period, many of whom were opening Westerners' eyes to the East. He was, by all accounts, successful at attracting a number of colleagues as well and new friends at Dartington to the Baha'i teachings. A kindred spirit was found in Bernard Leach, who had devoted his career to seeking a bridge between East and West. Mark Toby was the profoundest influence on my life, wrote Leach. It was through him I became a Baha'i. Others who responded to Toby's spiritual convictions from their days at the Slade School, <clears throat> Reginald Turvey, a friend of Bernard Leach, a South African painter, and the English painter Cecil Collins, who had moved with his wife to Dartington after becoming friends with Toby and later become a, became a full-time art teacher at the school. Bernard Leach had uh, arrived from his home in St. Ives, Cornwall, to teach pottery at Dartington not long after Toby's arrival, and to learn more about making stoneware in larger quantities than he'd been able to achieve in St. Ives, Leach secured funding from the Elmhursts for a visit to Japan in 1934, and Dorothy asked him if he'd like to take Mark Toby to travel with him at their expense, and Leach, who had become good friends with Toby, was very happy at the prospect. His uh, stay in the Far East would have major impact on the future course of his artistic pursuits and in Toby's case um, inspiring a visual language which would express his ideas in an entirely unique way. In Shanghai Toby spent several weeks studying calligraphy intensively with his friend Teng Bai. During time off Toby was dazzled by the congestion, the traffic, the dance halls, the nighttime buzz, the neon signs of Shanghai which reminded him of New York. And after China, Toby traveled on to Japan. While he'd been thrilled by the dynamism of Chinese cities, he appears to have been equally seduced by the quietness and the simplicity of the Japanese.
Japanese aesthetic. Most of his time in Kyoto was spent practicing and watching archery. On one occasion at the monastery, Toby was given a freely brushed Sunni ink painting of a large circle upon which to meditate, and this experience made a lasting impact on him. So soon after arriving back at Dartington from the Far East, Toby sat down one night and spontaneously created a small work in tempera on cardboard that depicts a continuous tangled mesh of white lines, occasionally woven through with darker blue and black threads and an amoeba-like shape trapped at its center. Toby later titled his picture Broadway Norm, saying that it evoked for him New York City's renowned street with the citizens and visitors caught up in the lights. And for Toby, the lines seemed to trace the buzzing around of people and traffic, while at the same time entangling them all in the unifying energy of the environment. And this painting represented the beginning of the turning point in Toby's approach. A few nights later, Toby painted Broadway. Drawing on his imagination and his training with Teng Bai, Toby translates his memory of New York into a swirling, pulsing calligraphy, expressing his personal experience of the nightlife in the city. Now, no one was more surprised at the creation of Broadway than the artist himself. He said he had no conscious plan to create a calligraphic painting. It seemed simply to uh, develop like a kind of dance or music making. He said, I've painted Broadway, which I must say astonishes me as much as anyone else. Such a feeling of hell under a lacy design, delicate as Watteau in spirit, but madness. At last, Toby said, I found a technical approach which enabled me to capture what specially interested me in the city. The lights, threading traffic, the river of humanity, chartered and flowing through and around its self-imposed limitation, not unlike chlorophyll flowing through the canals of a leaf. Line became dominant instead of mass, but I still attempted to interpenetrate it with a spatial existence. Writing the painting, whether in color or neutral tones, became a necessity for me. I often thought of this way of working as a performance, since it had to be achieved all at once or not at all the very opposite of building up, as I had previously done. In the process, I probably experienced the most extraordinary sensations I've ever had in art, because while one part of me was creating these two works, another part of me was trying to hold back. The old and new were in battle. It may be difficult for one who doesn't paint to visualize the ordeal an artist goes through when his angel of vision is being shifted. Despite his uh, pictorial discovery at Dartington in the autumn of 1935, his internal struggle between the old and the new remained with Toby, who continued to pursue multiple approaches to painting. I must say, I don't see much future for white writing, he initially stated. In the 1950s, he put himself through intensive training in Japanese sumi techniques, using opaque black ink thrown and splashed in a controlled way onto paper. This restless experimenter could never be satisfied with just one approach to picture making. Yet it was the white writing that he produced over the subsequent decades of his life that won Toby the most acclaim, especially in, in Europe. In masterpieces such as Edge of August, this approach reaches its apotheosis. As if in a piece of music, Toby strives to evoke the essence of an ineffable feeling 
the almost unnoticeable transition between summer and autumn, perhaps between east and west, or one era and another. All of this is conveyed with minute calligraphic marks, which shimmer like a waterfall through a pale tonal spectrum. This isn't action painting like Jackson Pollock's. It's supremely controlled and deliberate. It invites the viewer to immerse himself in dimensions beyond the physical. Surrendering uh, to the calligraphic impulse opened up new horizons for Toby. With it, he discovered a visual medium by which he could paint the turmoil and the tumult of the great cities, the intertwining of lights and the streams of people caught up in the mesh of their net. But his white writing wasn't just a means by which he could express the energetic hubbub of city life, as with Chinese and Japanese characters or the calligraphic work he may have seen in the Holy Land, Toby learned to convey meaning through line. His white writing brought a coherence to his many diverse preoccupations, his seemingly dichotomous fascination both with urban living and the patterns in nature, the harmonizing and unifying of the spirit of humanity with its material environment, the quiet contemplation of Zen meditation with the rhythms of music, the tensions between spirit and form, between classicism and modernity, between the world of bodies and the worlds of God, between the microcosm and the macrocosm. While Toby's formal visual sources were varied, the Baha'i faith had given his work its spiritual context, as well as the freedom to find its, his own pictorial language to express it. The Baha'i recognition of the primal oneness deposited at the heart of all created things prompted him to give equal weight and value to the diversity of the visual elements in his paintings, while at the same time stimulating in him a quest to establish unity and the interdependence of the elements. This writing style is not an abstraction, he said. Each line has a purpose and a meaning important to the whole. And here I must emphasize, it is the whole which is important. So Mark Toby's journey to discovering his own voice had been a long and tortuous path. In some, in his teaching or in his works, he seems to have essentially engaged in a quest to find an art that awakens spirit, that reconciled the ethereal and material aspects of life and nature. One appreciation written after he died in 1976 at the age of 86 stated that Toby could appreciate and respond to the physical beauties of the world to an extraordinary degree. Yet he was always aware that there was much more than this and his painting stretched to discover new means and dimensions of expression and vision, offering spiritual insight into man's eternal quest to grasp the nature of reality. Thank you very much.